Welcome listeners to episode 12 of Snippet Sports Science. I'm Chris Gavillio and I'm joined today with Jared Coleman-Stark. Welcome, Jared. Oh, thank you, Chris. And today we're going to be looking at post-exercise recovery of contractile function and endurance in humans and mice, which is accelerated by heating and slowed by cooling skeletal muscle. So obviously, Jared, I know this sits nicely within your own PhD work. So let's get straight into it. Let's give a bit of background behind the study. Yes, that's in, this fits in very nicely with the rest of our theme of using temperature for performance. And they stated quite clearly right here in the title that the post-exercise recovery is accelerated by heating and slowed by cooling the muscle. This is a really interesting study. I mean, they're looking at humans and mice. We typically wouldn't bother looking at any papers in mice, but this is quite interesting the way that they've made the study that's actually sort of a two-part study, where first they do an applied study in the humans, and then they back it up with a mechanistic study in the mice. So this is a little bit different from what we've previously looked at in temperature, where previously we've looked at temperature for performance, and now we're looking at the temperature during the recovery period. So in the pre- in our previous discussions that we've had about temperature, it's always been about getting that muscle warm before and or during the exercise to get the most improvement. And now we're looking at after the exercise, the temperature that the muscle is at, how does that affect the recovery? Okay. So that's actually quite quite a nice progression for the work that we have been doing. Right, exactly. So we've done warm-up, during, and now recovery. So normally in an introduction, they go through a little bit of previous literature. What are we expecting to see here? We're expecting to see that because the temperature is increased, there's more metabolism, and so or faster metabolism rather, and so the muscle is able to do all the mechanisms that it needs to be able to be restoring function to the muscle more effectively. With more heat? With more heat, yes. Whereas all those chemical reactions are going to be slowed down in the cooler temperatures and therefore won't be able to recover as effectively. That's really interesting because initially I would have thought heat would be a stress for the muscle and it would take longer to recover. But actually literature is saying possibly not. Heat can be a stress, but it's, it's much more of a stress centrally than for muscle. Muscle likes to be warm. Muscle creates a lot of warmth. Centrally, we we need to be losing quite a lot of heat often, but at the muscle itself, there's there's not a lot of detriment to heat. And this is really interesting because there's a lot of research coming out recently about how cold water immersion can attenuate strength gains. Right. So this fits actually within this kind of realm, possibly? Oh, absolutely. And the the researchers actually bring that up in that there's been a lot of theorization that the cold temperatures decrease inflammation, and they're actually finding that it doesn't necessarily decrease uh, that inflammation and the subsequent markers of muscle damage afterwards. Okay. What did they do in the study, Jared? So it was two different studies that they put back-to-back, essentially. The first one was with humans, where they had them first come in, do a warm-up of two sets of four minutes arm cycling exercise, followed by all-out exercise, three sets of five minutes, that arm cranking exercise as well. Additionally, then exhaustive exercise, four sets of 15 minutes at 50% VO2 peak. So 50% of the maximum amount of oxygen that they can consume, followed by two hours of recovery in which they consumed 1.1 grams carbohydrate per kilogram per hour. So a total of 2.2 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body weight in three different conditions, the heating condition, neutral, or the cooling condition. And then finally, they had another exercise test at the end where they did a warm-up of two sets of four minutes, followed by 
all-out exercise, three sets of five minutes. So that was the human study? Yep. So that's the human study. Mice study? In the mice study, what they did is they took a flexor digitorum brevis, which in a human, it's actually a foot muscle that lifts your four main toes. So I don't know if that's exact, exactly the same muscle in, in the mice where it would be lifting the toes of the paw. Um, but I don't know if that's exactly the most relevant muscle for arm cranking exercise, but regardless, it is a muscle. Similarly, uh, it's important to note that my, mice muscle is different from our muscle. Typically, it's a lot faster twitch than ours would be, so it has a much faster metabolism. However, it's a pretty good model for if you're going to extract a single muscle fiber. So they take this single intact muscle fiber and they subject it to some electrical stimulation. So they electrically stimulate the muscle, uh, approximately 12 minutes of exercise applied to the, to the muscle via the electrical stimulation until it got to a certain amount of fatigue where they saw the force was reduced to 30%. So they built up quite a bit of fatigue into that um, single muscle fiber. And then they give it uh, one to two hours of recovery at various temperatures from 12 degrees to 36 degrees Celsius, and then remeasured the submaximal force output and the fatigue resistance after the different conditions of cooling, heating, or neutral. So with the mice, they stimulated the muscle for 12 minutes. Correct. To simulate the humans doing the arm crank. Similar, yes. So from that point there, what measurements were they taking? So the main outcome measurement from the mouse study was uh, how quickly glycogen was resynthesized. So the main outcome measure from the mice study was how quickly glycogen was resynthesized. So the mechanistic claim from the mice study for why we see the performance improvements in the humans is that we see the glycogen is resynthesized more quickly in the mouse single intact fiber. Okay. Humans, similar kind of measurements they looked at? The humans, they were just looking at performance measurements. So that's why they had the mouse study is because they wanted to look at more of these molecular mechanistic things that they couldn't uh, extract from the humans. Okay. And the results from this? The results from this was that the increased temperatures result in an increased glycogen resynthesis rate and from in the mice study. And subsequent to that, we see increases in subsequent recovered performance in the humans. And that was in the heated? In the heated condition. Was there a difference between the, the cooler and the control? Yeah, and the cooling also impaired it. So not only does heating accelerate the recovery, but the cooling also impairs the recovery. So we see from 16 degrees all the way up to 36 degrees that more heat is better across the board for, all, for almost all the outcome measures. And, uh, and there's no sort of a top edge of that where it then starts declining because there's too much heat. It's essentially the more, more heat, more is more. Yeah, sure. And, and any other mechanisms that the, was there any mechanisms that the authors spoke about that may be at play here? So the primary mechanism was the increased rate of glycogen resynthesis. Uh, looking at this in a little bit more detail, that could be through more glucose uptake via the GLUT4 receptors or it could be through more activity of the glycogen synthase enzyme. And it appears that the number of GLUT4 glucose transporters was not really affected by the temperature, but rather it was the activity of the glycogen synthase that was affected by the temperature. Anything else that the authors came through in their discussion? One thing I thought was a bit interesting was that they were talking about the differences in the prolonged low-frequency force decrement. 
So that's something that we see in fatiguing exercise is that low frequency force is more impaired than high frequency force. So what that means is you do a lot of heavy work, you can go back and you can do the heavy work again, but it's the submaximal work, like just walking around in your everyday life that feels more fatiguing. And that's why that is, is because submaximal work, such as walking around, is low frequency force production. And that is more impaired by fatiguing exercise. And we need to be using higher frequency force to be doing things like just walking around. Whereas going and having a big heavy lift is a high frequency force production. And we find that that's not as impaired all the time as opposed to just feeling like you have heavy legs all the time. So what we see is that these temperature benefits are more seen for that prolonged low frequency force decrement than for high frequency. So what we would expect this, speaking in terms of application, what we would expect these sorts of recovery interventions to be most beneficial for are just those activities of daily living, like walking around, rather than necessarily for another high energy effort. So take a nice warm bath after a long day of that, walking. That's what I do. Exactly right. What were your takes on this? Any other thoughts? Yeah, I thought this was really straightforward. It was a great study showing both the applied side and the mechanistic side. So there's a lot of criticism on both ends of those that you you do the applied research and people criticize you on mechanisms, uh, scientific rigor a lot of the time. Application has to have a lot of applied studies have to have a lot of limitations in order to obtain the population and the measures that they want. Whereas mechanistic studies, I mean, we would never take a study on just mice, seriously, ever. But when you put the two together, it tells a very nice, complete story. Very good. Concluding thoughts on the paper? Yeah, great. Great paper. I I really like the tie-in between the applied study and the mechanistic study. Another thing that I thought was quite interesting was how there was no top-end temperature that was detrimental. Yeah, definitely. In these in these observations. So there was there was no heat that's too high. And that's similar to what we saw in the study with the water perfused trousers that we discussed recently, that there was no top end that was detrimental to the outcome measures. It, they, they were limited by the temperature induced pain that the at the skin that the athletes experienced, rather than actual outcome limitations at the muscle. And so we're seeing another example of no temperature is too high for the muscle. It's just how the human perceives it and the practicality behind that. Exactly. We're limited by our perceptions. Definitely. Well, thank you very much, Jared. Thank you. It's really great that you'd come and explain that one here. And it really fits nicely in with your own thesis. So it'd be great to actually see more stuff coming through on this work with the heat and obviously with your thesis as well. So everyone, thank you for listening today. If you want any more information, please visit our website at snippetscience.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and please give us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate everyone listening on our weekly podcast. If you really enjoy it, share it with your friends, tell them all, get them on board. We really want to see this community grow over time. If you have any suggestions, please remember to leave us a comment on our website. See you next week.